0: Back to another episode. It is your hosts, Megan Gesner.
1: And Harini.
0: What's up? What's up? What's up? All right. This is part two mm. of Diff. the really interesting and scandalous story of the Sackler mm-hmm. family mm-hmm. and their creation of the opioidemic, essentially. Yeah. Absolutely. Ruth peddling OxyContin. And lying about what it does. Sorry, I did the recap for you. I think I'm just a little bit excited because I literally, after our last recording, I shut my laptop. Okay, recording, uploaded of that. Shut my laptop, turned the TV on, immediately put on Dope Sick. You did. You did. I
1: did. Okay. I did. And
0: And I like it. I I will say, I think I probably only am three episodes deep.
1: Girl, three episodes. I was expecting one episode. So that is.
0: So, so, I mean, uh, and as an addition to this confessional, I have also just started binging the Dropout, which is the right, biopic right. of Elizabeth mm-hmm. Holmes' story in Theranos, mm-hmm. played by Amanda Seyfried. So I'm I'm doing all my TV due diligence of the stories that we have covered, the stories that are right. trending. That said, going back to Dope Sick, because we mm-hmm. kind of talked about this on the last episode. Yeah. I do really enjoy the theatrical decision around how the Sackler family is portrayed as mm. just like like even an aesthetic it just feels like yeah. they're villains around a table oh, like so totally. sterile you know <laughs> yes, and it's really yes. I'm like there clearly was a decision to make to 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 The juxtaposition of them always having their meetings at like a freaking art gallery versus the miners you know in their like sooted outfits and like doing a hoedown in a barn like (laughs) it's so it's it's fun it's fun tv it's fucked up because like that's
1: it's about a real thing but i
0: I am enjoying it
1: (laughs) no it's really well done you're totally right they made choices they made some choices on that show and It really makes it very entertaining to watch. And again, like I know that sounds—that's like a bad choice of word, but Mm. I I think if you're gonna educate people, entertain them while you're freaking doing it, and they're doing a fantastic job. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well. Okay. Richard Sackler. Now that you've seen it, Richard Sackler, isn't he weird?
0: Well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, like he's got like a
1: vibe to him.
0: So, so I haven't done the next necessary step, which is to watch you know the character portrayal of him and then watch yeah. actual interviews. But okay, this is so this is kind of what I was talking about even in the the dropout Elizabeth Holmes. So mm-hmm. knowing previous to these shows coming out, we know what these individuals do essentially that cause a huge amount of harm to other mm-hmm. people. So Richard Sackler and Elizabeth Holmes, these stories are about them because at the end of the day they've caused harm yeah right and the thing is like i still feel like in dope sick and the dropout while you do get this element of like okay you can see how they're the person that they are and why they've made these choices that will impact a lot of people lot people's lives for the worse mm. i still feel like in, in um dope sick mm-hmm. there's a part that the writing is trying to get you to sympathize with mm. Richard Sackler, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. It, it, even though it's, it's extremely subtle, I right. still feel like that's always an element in television where it's like, well, here's like why this person's mm-hmm. kind of weird and like right. you know he's just he he's put he has a lot of pressure on him because yeah. they're they're going about to be bankrupt or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. They were going through like money issues and have a product. So it's all the pressures on him that he he borrowed a shit ton of money or no, no, invested a lot of money or like, you know, gave up family money to go into Oxycontin, which no one else in his family believes in. But he's like, I have to prove it. I have to prove it. And that's why he makes these decisions. But I'm like, but at the end of the day, like. Is still selfish, <laughs> you know. Oh, <yeah.
1: laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, you're totally right. I was gonna, I at first I was gonna disagree, but there is like a part later where it's very strongly like they're trying to get you to empathize. But I will say, I think 90% of the time, they're like, this guy's shit.
0: <laughs> they, they okay, do. yeah. They do. They, I mean, I mean, they, it just gets they, worse
1: from here, I suppose right i
0: just hate those like early stages in a tv series where they try it's like it's like but i mean that's the whole point of character development right but Mm -hmm. i'm just like we already know this dude is shit like you don't his earlier steps in this process i don't think justifies
1: or alleviates what's to come and like so why even bother i'm like (laughs) don't I don't, know. I, I don't know it's just i don't know if it's just like a right like a storytelling thing I, I don't even know right Right. I, but i agree yeah. with
0: you anyways it's but yes good. he is weird sorry that was a long
1: answer to your question
0: he is weird and yes i agree but i still have to watch real life interviews of the guy
1: yeah yeah please do i i will say from the dope sick point of view he's giving me like joaquin phoenix joker vibes like that's the first thing i thought of when i saw him like whoa this guy is creepy <laughs> <laughs>
0: He just always I mean, has that expression on his face. It's like his his eyebrows are raised, but like his his face looks concerned at the same
1: time. I don't know how he does it. Yeah. His voice is what really unsettles me. Like I don't like the I don't love the like the high pitched, whispery voice. It's like husky it's but high pitched. Like, yeah. yeah, it's like speak up, miss. Like <sighs> I'm the cop, can't hear you <laughs> <mother>. <laughs> Like that
0: sort of thing, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. Exactly.
0: Like We're doing that. this for the family. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Literally, <yes. laughs> Guys, you just witnessed an Academy award worthy uh, scene right there. Uh, <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. All right. Enough. All right. Let's get into it. Chitter chatter. <laughs> <Hey>, yeah. <laughs> let's get into the dark and diabolical. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Megan already did a great recap. And I realized on the last episode, which was a part two of Megan's, not the last episode, like the last episode series. So Megan's episode. Mm. I said re-crap <laughs> like twice. <laughs> I was it's like okay. on the last recap, like and then I listened back to them. I'm like, oh my god, like what am I saying? Anyways, okay. So that's like there forever for everyone to listen to. So that's fun. <laughs> okay. I didn't even know. <laughs> I didn't even see it, hear it. Good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we ended last time with Mark Ross, who was the sales rep at Purdue Pharma, and he's the one that kind of gets that, writes a concern email, sends it up the food chain at Purdue Pharma, and essentially was told to shut up and sell, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. While this is going on, there's been hints to the public that something isn't right. More people are resorting to crime and drugs. So really quick recap again, the mm. reason why Mark Ross even sends the email is because he basically sees one of his one of the doctors in his district snore OxyCon off his own desk in his clinic. Right. And he's also hearing rumors of his own patients having drug seeking behavior to get more Oxycontin pills. And that just kind of grows and grows. More sales reps are hearing of similar stories in their districts. And this is not just in West Virginia. This is happening across the country. Although West Virginia has higher has been having higher rates of that. So a journalist of at the New York Times was tipped off about a story of a pharma company possibly responsible for an opioid crisis. And mm. this person is Barry Meyer. Mm. So Barry begins his research. This is the first time he's ever done any kind of story or even attempted to do a story about drugs or the world of the pharmaceutical industry. So he's really just starting bare bones from scratch. But he does, I mean, he's a journalist at the end of the day. So he does his research. He talks to
0: everybody. um, Is he freelance or does he work for a certain publication? I'm sorry if I missed that.
1: No, he works for the New York Times. He's a journalist. New New York Times, Times. okay. And he does go on to be the author of a New York Times bestseller, which is called Painkiller, which was the first Mm. account of the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this was interesting. In the documentary I watched, which is Crime of the Century, on HBO Max, Mm -hmm. they start out with talking about how they don't even like the term opioid crisis and they they like to stick to the term opioid epidemic because Mm. when you look at the word crisis in the dictionary, it implies something that has happened suddenly and out of nowhere. And Mm. they really want to emphasize that this did not happen out of nowhere. This was almost like planted. It was planned, premeditated even uh, for this to happen. So I just thought that was a really interesting point. Do you know who his tip off was? I don't. An
0: anonymous source.
1: I think it was just like an anonymous source. Yeah, there is. Just there to, like, is. Look into this. I'm sure it's from the inside. Like I'm thinking oh, about. I was just. Gonna, I was, I was
0: yeah. just going to say. I was like, there is. Boys and pals do not take this to heart or whatever. I'm just being silly and goofy. And maybe this is a dangerous thing to say. But I'll give a look
1: okay. okay. Here we <laughs> go. Like,
0: what if the tip off? <laughs> was from
1: a Sackler family oh. member. Boosh. Dude, if this I'm kidding. Watch
0: me get sued. <laughs> Fuck. Fiction movie. Mm-hmm.
1: That, is, that is a plot twist. That was the definition yeah. of anyways. <laughs> continue, continue. Sorry. Continue. It was Richard Sackler himself.
0: <laughs> he was tired. The guilt was weighing on him. He's like, "Investigate me. <laughs> Just be done with it."
1: I know. Uh, if only. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so In his research, he's shocked to learn that opioids were the highest sought after a street drug. Not heroin, not meth, but specifically long-term opioids because they are more pure and more potent than short-term opioids. Mm. This inherently, and this is coming from Barry's mind, he's done his research, he's read all the clinical trials that Purdue has put out and things like that, and he's thinking, as someone who's not in the scientific field, He's thinking, OK, based on all the evidence and data that Purdue Pharma has put out about OxyContin, this inherently goes against all the FDA language that Purdue had been touting, which states that long term opioids reduce abuse potential. Like Now you mm-hmm. guys can say this phrase in your sleep at this point. So he's just like, what yeah. the heck? That totally goes against everything. So that right. is already a red flag. But this is a great example of how the general public was just not aware of what was going on in the pain world. But it makes sense, right? The people mm. who were acutely aware of the opioid epidemic were, of course, Purdue Pharma, the but they denied it at the time. Mm-hmm. The healthcare community. Pain patients and their families, most likely, and to an extent, their community, who were dealing with the rise in crime as a result of opioids. But if you were not directly affected or even indirectly affected, if if you were in like a high risk uh, town or or state, you probably didn't even know that the opioid crisis was even happening, or sorry, opioid epidemic was even happening. One of those people who were extremely aware and concerned about the growing issue was Dr. Art Van Zee in St. Charles, Virginia. Mm. Dr. Van Zee is a doctor who is a big proponent of fighting against the opioid epidemic. He provides some stats that are pretty staggering. And I believe he didn't say, but I believe this is these are stats in his community. So this is what he says. He says in 1999 to 2000, at least 9% of 7th graders in his community had tried OxyContin at least once. Mm. And 25% of 11th graders had tried OxyContin at least once. And there's clips of them going around to like a middle school, it looks like, because they look fairly young, going to mm-hmm. a middle school, middle school and asking them about OxyContin. And it's just like some kid who's just like, yeah, yeah, like we do it on the weekends, like it just makes you feel really good. Um, you kind of feel like you're, you're not in your body, you're, like you're floating. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's just so disturbing, you know, yeah. like I'm just thinking yeah. about, you know, when I was a sixth grader or seventh grader. I wasn't even thinking about that stuff at all. I I did not even know what that was. I mean,
0: that's exactly what I was thinking in my head as you were saying that. Because in my mind, I'm like, God, when I was in middle school, I had no concept of these things. Mm, But then I also thought to myself, I'm like, uh, this is also coming from a child- (laughs) As I mentioned in the last podcast, a child from a family who barely ever went to the doctors or even followed the doctor's advice to just grab a prescription downstairs because we're like, oh, like, it's too expensive and it's not a necessity. So, like, we don't need to go. That said, Mm -hmm. sorry, Mm -hmm. I talk about myself a little. The one, um, you know, thinking about it now. I would not be surprised if that behavior around Oxycontin was happening in my um, middle school or high school area um, because, Mm -hmm. I mean, well, my neighborhood, not neighborhood, but the larger community that I grew up in in the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas Mm -hmm. is kind of known for like meth methamphetamines mm. being like brewed up in the uh, the forest you know what i'm saying oh, like yeah. that was th- <laughs> that that sounds, was happening there <laughs> and it sounds and, nicer. fairies. Yeah. <laughs> right right i mean yeah. i'm sure people felt like fairies when they're on meth but that said um that was like a a rumor you know unsubstantiated in some ways but like sure. there there was a concern around my middle school that you know some kids or people or that just kind of loitered around the vicinity of the school had connections to methamphetamines Mm. that is all to say i know Amphetamines are different from opioids. (laughs) No, no, but it's like (laughs) opposite, but it's like, but I'm like, it runs in the same vein of illicit drug use. Literally. So, so I, I, part of me is like, I I wish I had the ability to go back with my adult brain today (laughs) and be like, what was actually happening in my community that I was blissfully unaware about? Right. You know?
1: Right. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. That's so wild to me, but you're totally right. Like, it probably was happening, but you know, it just depends on what you know, what people you hang out with and who, exactly you know, that kind of thing. Absolutely. So so Dr. Van Zee would often go around the streets after midnight tending to young people who had overdosed on OxyContin, hmm. which is like, he didn't have to do that. You know, he's going out after his whole yeah. day of clinic to go tend to these patients. Well, they're not even his patients, but just these people. He talks about how in many ways he was unprepared for a practice like this. He began to write letters to Dr. Maddox, who is the medical director at Purdue, telling him of the ongoing crisis in his hometown. He says 70% of crimes in the county are now drug related. We need help. Dr. Van Zee didn't get any help from Purdue. So he decides to take it into his own hands by holding town halls and educating his town on the dangers of opioids and addiction. Eventually, this led This leads to a petition to ask the FDA to recall Oxy, which leads him to speaking in front of Congress. He is very nervous to speak before the Senate. Purdue people are there. Senator Clinton is there. And then Senator Chris Dodd is there, who is the senator for Connecticut, where Purdue Pharma is located senator dodd is a big proponent of purdue and i'm sure he's probably even getting paid by purdue to be honest and squarely told dr van z that the company cannot be cannot be blamed for addicts that are choosing to kill themselves Mm. he also made a jab at dr van z for his small town mentality kind like the things that he was saying was almost like oh you know this hillbilly doctor that kind of thing Uh, which is you know not at all the case you know yeah no further action was made after that day. Honestly speaking, Dr. Van Z was a little bit demoralized after speaking in mm. front of Congress. It was a it was a big deal for him for him to even go there. He's by himself speaking on his own, and that was the outcome, you know. Like I I think he just felt like it's a lot. Yeah. He's just he's
0: just going out there to advocate for the community mm-hmm. that he cares for that, you know, might not have access to a whole bunch of other great resources or whatever and
1: To be like, yeah, put down, but cold, yeah. Regardless of the outcome, obviously nothing really came of it, but this was bad press for Purdue. So Mm. they hire a politician to help them save their blockbuster drug, none Mm. other than our fave New York boy Rudy Giuliani. (laughs) He began to work with Purdue, and he lends his credibility to help save their brand. This, oh, Sorry, oh, man. I don't make this podcast political but no no i no i, I
0: like just i podcast. i don't i won't i don't whatever it's fine i just i it's so
1: it's just funny i don't i don't know what else to say it's, it's it, like it is it's funny like, it's funny it's like bad tv <laughs> like, i know i'm like you could have chosen anybody and you chose i
0: think it <laughs> makes perfect sense that it was that it was him that was chosen it, it just it reads beautifully like yeah. but i am just i oh, just. Yeah. Yeah, it's like just a
1: comedy at that point. Anyway, comedy of errors. Yeah. Okay. Rudy Giuliani is on board and he lends his credibility to help save their brand. It seems like Purdue is quite literally getting away with murder and in, in many ways they are, but the authorities are onto them. Slowly but surely, they are building their case. A federal prosecutor in Virginia, which makes sense because, of course, they are getting hit the hardest from this epidemic, this federal prosecutor goes after them with full force but they are a small team they are working from a small resources and this team consisted of a grand total of 3 people John Brownlee a US attorney for the Western District of Virginia Rick Mountcastle who's assistant US attorney who's assistant to the US Attorney General and Randy Ramsayer also assistant attorney general to John Brownlee so the 3 of them they are hustling they are working hard to take down Purdue Pharma. Brownlee and his team begin quietly working to take down Purdue starting in 2002. Brownlee is in his mid-30s. He's a bit of a cowboy, and he was a former paratrooper in Army Reserve JAG Corps, so he was not afraid of taking any kind of risk. Hmm. When Purdue later got hints that a Virginia-based team of attorneys were working to take them down, Head of legal counsel at Purdue, a man named Udell, was confident that they would run circles around the, quote, bunch of hillbilly lawyers. Mm. But Purdue underestimated this trio. Brownlee's team's Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Of course. (laughs) Sorry. I was just thinking about Dope Sick. I'm like, these dudes, at least, I mean...
1: Oh, you've probably... How they're portrayed,
0: right? Yeah, yeah. They're they're introduced in the first episode. But how they're portrayed, I'm like, these guys are some bad motherfuckers. Dude, yeah. And they're they're so, like, they're... Well, again, just how they're portrayed. Mm. They're they're bad motherfuckers (laughs) in terms of, like, they're going to keep going for it, going for it. But they're also, like, so polite about their process, too. They are. But, like, they're, like, they're polite but determined. And I'm just Mm -hmm. like, that is that that country charm that
1: southern charm i don't know if you can call it southern i guess but no they're very very upstanding men and polite as far as i'm aware they're just doing their job they're doing their job and but there's they're doing their job but they're doing it not like by hook or by crook they're doing it in the right right way the right methods and they don't need to be pushy or put pressure on anyone to get the information they need they are doing it quietly and politely as you said Mm -hmm. which is rare I think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Purdue underestimates, underestimates them. Brownlee's team's case consisted of juicy Purdue sales rep calls and depositions, all cataloged precisely in spreadsheets that all pointed to Purdue knowingly concealing the drugs addictiveness. Brownlee mm. Mountcastle and Ramsair need needed to pr- needed to prove misbranding of Oxycontin. Misbranding essentially means it's a crime that a company has mislabeled a drug or fraudulently promoted it or marketed it mm. for an unapproved use. Mm. It's honestly a little bit of a vague term, a technical term and it's difficult for the team to prove but they get it done. The small version of the team spends five years building their case. Purdue mm-hmm. Pharma was dumbfounded that the supposed quote backwoods team of lawyers had in fact identified a significant crime inside their mound of documents. The company mm. immediately puts out several press reports on Brownlee and had Giuliani unnerve Brownlee on behalf of Purdue. So he, Giuliani like reaches out to Brownlee a few times is like, <sighs> you better back up type of thing. <laughs> oh my God. And they, they actually set up a meeting between Brownlee and Giuliani in, in the effort for Giuliani to have him back down, have Brownlee back down. So mm. he reads... Giuliani's book called Leadership to get ready for his meeting with him saying, quote, I want to be prepared. That is some
0: like dedication. That's some smart shit. No, that's like, yeah, it's 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 smart in a way where it's like, I mean, I won't say like, it's even like respectful, but it's like it's it's the type of like, the type of wit that just Mm-hmm. I'm like that's the what a hero has, you know, because of that again. Yeah, to me they're a hero in the story. But I'm like, but I'm like, it's the type where it's yeah. like to disarm your enemy,
1: you mm-hmm. just need to know how they think, and that is brilliant. He is, he is doing some good old strategy play. That's all he's doing. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people don't think like that anymore. You know, it's 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 almost mm-hmm. like old school in a way. But dude, right. it works. It works. If you want to get in some, yeah. inside someone's head why don't you mm-hmm. read a book that's supposedly by them, you know? Right, but right. anyways, very smart. Safe to say, Brownlee and the team were not unnerved in the slide, <laughs> slightest by Giuliani. Yeah. yeah. In 2005, Purdue lawyers called then-deputy attorney General James Comey to question Brownlee's investigatory tactics. And Comey does call Brownlee with his concerns. Brownlee mm. is very like, no, no, no. no. Like, we're we're doing this by the book there there's nothing you can throw at us to be like you got to call off this investigation so he responds by personally driving the four hours to Washington to lay out his Mm. strategies to Comey and Comey's like not expecting him to go do this so he's like Bradley you are fine go back to Virginia and do your case Mm. so he swerves that (laughs) This team, by the time they feel ready to come forward and prosecute, have gathered over 1 million pieces of evidence that to them equaled a crime. They Mm -hmm. were going after a giant who had slipped through the cracks time and time again, with clearly people in the government helping cut them loose. So they had to make sure that the case was airtight and impenetrable. In 2006, Brownlee sends a final behemoth of a memo to the Department of Justice, the DOJ, for that final stamp of approval. It was an incredibly Mm. detailed memo with rock-solid evidence. The charges were the following, mail fraud, wire fraud, misbranding, conspiracy to to defraud, and money laundering. Mm. When Purdue gets a whiff that their executives could land in jail, they called in all of their political stops to get this off of the DOJ's desk. Rudy Giuliani and former U.S. attorney Mary Jo White went directly to Mm. Alice Fisher, who is the head of the criminal division, and then to her boss, who is Paul McNulty. Mm. The outcome of that meeting resulted in none of the Purdue executives even being put on trial. And instead, Mm. they put together a plea deal. This, of course, isn't what Brownlee wanted, but there was still a chance that the company, at least... Could be slapped with some charges, rendering them not able to do business anymore. Right. That was enough for him to go with it, so he did. But Purdue just can't let it go, man. In October of 2006, the night before the plea deal was set to expire, after which the company would face charges, a senior Justice Department officer calls Brownlee at his home. And this mm. is at the request of our Purdue lawyer. This officer urges Brownlee to extend the deadline to give Purdue more time. For what? I don't really know. But he asks to give them like a grace period to extend it. Brownlee is shocked. He he's absolutely done being pressured by people in the government bending over backwards for this family. He flatly says there will be no extension. Purdue wisens up and realizes that they shouldn't risk gathering more charges in a trial in West Virginia, where their blockbuster drug OxyContin was now being called OxyCoffin. Mm. So they accepted the plea deal that night. But of course, Purdue isn't done negotiating for themselves. Eight days after Purdue accepts the plea deal, Brownlee comes into work, only to see that his name was on a firing list being circulated within the DOJ. Whoa. I mean, this is a big moment in the show. I don't, <laughs> so I'm sorry,
0: if I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. For you. It's okay. It's fine. I will watch it right after we record. <laughs> I record finishing, finishes. I don't really have much to say. It's just more of like, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm not surprised. I would be surprised if, you know, all the things that Brownlee wanted happened in right. the right order
1: and with the ease. That would be a surprise. Exactly. But that shit ain't going to happen. I have good news. Ultimately, Brownlee doesn't get fired. But this is just to emphasize how wide Purdue's reach goes into the government. It's kind of scary. Now negotiations are finally complete. Purdue would plead guilty to a single misbranding felony and the executives to misdemeanor charges of misbranding the drug. But all charges were placed on Purdue Frederick, which is a holding company of Purdue Pharma. So it was Mm. a holding company, not Purdue Pharma, that was banned from doing business. This was Mm. a Giuliani-arranged deal that allowed OxyContin sales to keep growing and the opioid Mm. epidemic along with it. On May 2007, Brownlee announced the news of the settlement. The company and its top executives would plead guilty to their role that helped OxyContin flourish while downplaying its high addiction and abuse rate. Purdue Frederick was to pay $600 million in fines and admit that for six years it had fraudulently marketed OxyContin as having less abuse. Mm. But the thing is, the Sackler family could see this coming because it's part. it was part of the plea deal. So mm-hmm. they were like, this is not going to go away. They understood there's no amount of money that they could throw at it to buy their way out of it. So they were like, right. we got to choose three people for them to throw under the bus so that we can like keep doing business essentially mm. so they choose mm-hmm. three executives medical director paul goldenheim michael friedman and their legal counsel udell which really sucks damn <laughs> yeah i mean they're all horrible people but it's like dude they are you know? they are that's uh you can't even fess up to your own crimes yeah i'm like i'm, I'm getting a. Uh, oh Succession vibes, for oh, sure. yeah. Oh, yeah. Huge succession vibes. Actually, Megan, when I first started watching Dope Sick, just like the way they mm-hmm. filmed, like you said, around the table, mm-hmm. I was like, this is giving me succession yeah. vibes. Yeah. It's like super
0: sterile, that mm-hmm. that that aesthetic of just too corporately clean
1: and cold. For added visual effect, and this is heavily displayed in Dope Sick, a big part of the trial were these Graphs that Purdue pharma was using in their clinical trials and it was a big part of the sales rep and the medical team when they would go out to the doctors and be like, "Oh, look at our drug. It's so much better. Look at the look at these graphs." And the whole thing with opioids, just for for like a quick educational piece. The whole thing with opioids and the reason why you have to take them every 4 to 6 hours. Let's just say like you just came out of surgery and someone gives you a Vicodin. You have to take it every four to six hours because chart it on a graph, it would almost look like, like a sign graph where it has it goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down because there's a peak and then it drops, right? So you mm-hmm. have to keep taking it in order to have sustained pain relief, right? And the whole purpose with OxyContin, is, or at least that's what Purdue Pharma says, is that it has sustained pain efficacy has sustained release. Mm-hmm. So instead of having the sign graph, it's just a straight plateau. So it, it goes mm. up and then it just is stable for the whole right. graph, right? And that was what they right. were using as a big part of their arsenal and, and their toolkit going out to people and be like, that's how our drug is safer. Because there's no peaks mm. and valleys because once you dip, you want more. So if right. it's sustained, you don't feel the need to, you know, reach into your pocket and, and take another pill. Right. But what they find out is that they actually concocted that data and the mm. x axis was basically flattened. So it looks mm. like it's a straight, like a basically a plateau. They had another statistician basically replot plot it how it should have been mm. and it's zigzaggy as fuck. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, like
0: a typical typical opioid sign graph. Absolutely. Results, right? Mm hmm. And not like I I know you said this in the episode last week, Mm -hmm. actually, you'll have to remind me, but I know from the early episodes of Dope Sick, they pretty immediately get into how the company Purdue encouraged or or kind of fooled their salespeople Mm -hmm. to be like, okay we're going to push doctors to tell our patients to double the dose like they got into that pretty quickly. And I was and so I don't know, I'm just I'm just applying it here in terms of okay so they recognize obviously it's doing what any other drug does so they're like okay Mm -hmm. so just double it then and that will fool them then it's then it is really sustained long term whatever but it just means you took a higher dose so of course you're gonna peak for longer or whatever
1: Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. no yeah yeah. so i I mean that was just like a part of the trial that they that was in this article so i wanted to mention that because it was a big part yeah 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 So two months after the news of the settlement, Purdue executives fly to Abington, Virginia for their sentencing hearing, which is where the attorney's office is, is in Abington, Virginia. Parents who had Mm -hmm. children that were dead from opioids flooded the courthouse. They marched, they congregated, and they took turns on the witness stand with posters, like clutching posters of their dead children. They told Mm -hmm. their stories and they begged the judge to ban OxyContin from the market. One mother, Lee Nuss, even brought a mini urn that contained some of her son's ashes and she shook it in mm. front of the executives' faces saying, you killed my son. Illegal drug pushers mm. get jail time and so should you. It's true. Mm. It is true. One of the heads of the fraud division at the DOJ described himself as mortified when he found out about this. And by, what I mean by this is the fact that they entered this plea deal and the Sackler family didn't get any jail time or anyone didn't get any jail right. time, rather. He says it makes absolutely no sense. Purdue received no trial and was slapped with a $600 $600 million fine, which is quite honestly a drop in the bucket for it's them. Nothing. They were making billions, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's nothing. Compared- and then mm-hmm. given
0: the, the I mean like that amount it's kind of like what we talked about in terms of the MGM Grand situation. Anyway, divide that amongst all the people affected. That's right. nothing to each oh, person yeah. too oh, yeah. for the for the loss of a life you know what i mean yeah if you um, can even quantify so. that yeah absolutely yeah yeah
1: i think mm-hmm. people didn't want money at this point they want jail time they want them to yeah. pay for what they did in a different way so right compared to what they should have been prosecuted for this was like paying for a speeding ticket they got off virtually scot-free the chief of fraud at the doj said something that is a fantastic point, I, I believe. He said, Purdue mm. was making $9 billion from this drug by mm. hook or by crook, and they got prosecuted, and all they had to do was pay a fine of $600 million. Mm. Mm-hmm. The reason he has such a problem with this, and the reason why he was saying this is not what should have happened, is because now everyone's going to look at this and be like, who wouldn't repeat this action? If the worst mm. that would happen is you pay a small fine. That is exactly Mm -hmm. what is so, so important to uphold the law and prosecute those who cross legal boundaries is to set and keep a precedent of what is right and what is wrong. When you don't Mm -hmm. uphold that contract, you are shouting from the rooftops to organizations like Purdue to up the ante on their crimes, Mm. keeping business Mm -hmm. as usual. It sends that message, whether people want to admit it or not. Around the time Brownlee put forward his defense, the chief medical director, Dr. Paul Goldenheim, who was later prosecuted, he testifies at Congress, saying that they only found out recently that Oxycontin was being abused. This was Mm. in reaction to an article that was published in the Boston Globe about widespread Oxycontin abuse in Maine. But Mm -hmm. now we know that Dr. Goldenheim lied on the stand. He was fully aware, and so was everyone else. There are emails to prove it in writing and Purdue Pharma did their own spoon and shoot study where they crushed up Mm. Oxy into a powder, boiled it on a silver spoon and injected it to see its effects. Like, I don't know what they injected it to, but probably mice, Mm. unfortunately, which clearly showed them that Oxycontin could easily be abused. Mm -hmm. Purdue also knew that the drug was being sought out as a street drug. People seeking out Oxy were known as purple peelers because they would just peel off the time-release coating. But somehow Purdue doubles down, and they decide to come out with a new formulation of OxyContin, a one hundred sixty milligram tablet. And I believe Mm. this is after they already get prosecuted. Interesting. So another concerned sales rep emails executives saying, "In this, they show the email. It says they are killing themselves with the eighty milligram tablets. Why would we come out with a one hundred sixty? Makes no sense." Right. Right. But they come out with the one hundred sixty anyway. Interesting.
0: What do you know about like, okay, if a, does, does a company have to go through a second round of FDA approval when they do something like this? Yes. Yes. From my knowledge. Yes. Because at, th- okay. And at this point in time, are they still, do they still have like the FDA in their pocket?
1: I don't know. Cause that, that guy who initially gave right. it up, yeah. but right. it's clear to me that they kind of have everyone in their pockets if they want it, mm, if they want it mm-hmm. to be. Cause think about it. Like when they first started, they made a lot of money but after producing oxycontin they were making billions so they have money to burn and pay off whoever the heck Mm -hmm. they want so i wouldn't be surprised Mm -hmm. i mean if they could find that one guy they can find another guy so yeah they come out this 160 milligram tablet but before they do come out with the 160 purdue decides to trial it out on a single patient first so down in Naples, Florida, there was a former heroin addict with a high tolerance for opioids. He goes to a certain doctor down in Naples for his back pain. I believe he's on morphine injections at that time. One mm-hmm. day he comes out of his appointment and a woman is waiting for him and asks and ask him if he would consider switching over from morphine to her company's drug called Oxycontin. All expenses would be paid to switch him over and he would essentially get the meds for free this person i forgot to say his name i don't know if i said his name his name's gary Mm-mm, no okay okay so gary i'm gonna i'm trying to find his last name but i don't think i see it right away okay so gary mm. recalls how this lady told him that there was no limit to the dose you can take as much as you need until you get pain relief and chances mm. of overdosing are slim so of course gary's like sure you have a deal like let's do it so mm-hmm. they start him on the 160 milligram tablet eight to ten tablets twice a day that is a lot what that's a lot wait
0: he was in the he's in the documentary right yes mm-hmm. that's right I remember and I, in my head I was like wow your tolerance <laughs> is incredibly high yeah and I know that I'm not I'm not it, but it's a it's like
1: crazy high yeah uh, yeah anyway it's watch crazy the documentary. High. yeah <laughs> So yeah, 8 to 10 tablets twice a day, but Gary receives no pain relief. So they Mm. up him to 15 tablets twice daily, then 20 tablets twice daily. That is 6,400 milligrams a day of an opioid, a long-acting opioid at that, not even short-term. Even short-term, that'd be nuts. Still no Mm -hmm. pain relief for Gary. So the person who is the sales rep, the person who even gets Gary on the, the meds in the first place is a sales rep at Purdue Pharma called Stephanie Kaufman. And Megan, to your point, Megan was saying <laughs> how, like, how do they find these people? Like he, he is someone who has an extremely high tolerance and he seems to perfectly into like their trialing period because the whole point the reason why they're trialing this 160 milligram tablet is to prove to people that not that high of a dose actually like you can take as many as you want and look this guy's still fine right and he's the perfect person for that and i have to emphasize this is not the typical person like even if someone who has a high opioid tolerance this is this is very this is an outlier um, outlier yeah yeah Mm -hmm. it's an outlier so how did they even find this person? I don't necessarily know, but they do say that Stephanie Kaufman was in a sexual relationship with Gary's doctor. So, oh, but two and wow. two together. Sh- yeah. So probably the doctor was like, hey, if you need somebody who has a high opiate, I've got the guy for you. So that's how I imagine yeah. that whole thing started.
0: That's so interesting because it seems like such a small... I know it sounds weird, but it seems like a small connection, right? Because I imagine that right. she does sales to a bunch of clinics in stuff like yep. that. So yep. it's just kind of weird. Uh, it's weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's
1: just like weird happenstance. Okay. <laughs> so Stephanie call. So he he's not getting any pain relief from 20, 20 tablets twice daily. So that's 40 tablets a day. Still no pain relief for Gary. So Stephanie calls Gary's doctor, who she knows, and tells, them, tells her, give him more medication. So that's when they mm. go up to 25 tablets twice daily. That's 50 tablets a day. So he, at this point, he's taking a little over two tablets every hour. If he is like up at all times of the day, assuming.
0: So that's... What? what, what does, <laughs> I'm laughing because this is just absurd. It's crazy. Yeah. But also I'm like... What does what does his prescription bottle look like? Is it a fucking like two gallon tub? <laughs> like what? He's flying through pills. I didn't pills. think about that.
1: Like I'm just—it's like a
0: cheese puff. Uh, yeah.
1: No, no, no. Go on. You know the
0: the, the the you know the Costco oh, yeah. tubs of the, yeah. the Uts cheese
1: puff balls. That's his prescription yeah, bottle. Yeah. <laughs> dude, dude. I was just well. What I was just gonna say is. I'm just curious about, like, the the pharmacy tech or the pharmacist who's filling it. But I guarantee you, there's no freaking way in hell that they're going through a pharmacy. This is probably getting sent, sent not sent, it's probably getting dispensed and given to the patient at mm-hmm. this clinic under closed yeah. doors. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Because ain't no pharmacist going to be like, all right, let's... Right. Well, maybe there are. Because so then, then I I would imagine
0: the pharmacist would be like, who's selling these drugs? Because that's what I would, oh, I would think as a pharmacist who's getting that prescription label you know um order yeah like someone's buying a (laughs) 100
1: pills for for 100 pills per day sort of thing right or was it yeah no it or so so. prescription would literally be like patient to take 25 tablets of 160 milligram oxycontin twice daily what like there are gonna be like 50 tablets no freaking way am i gonna dispense this that's insane okay right so Again, like that's if he was up at all hours of the day, just never slept, then he is taking a little over of two tabs every hour, which is eight thousand milligrams now. So eight grams of oxycontin. If you do the conversions, he is taking two hundred hits of heroin a day. That is equivalent. Jesus. Interestingly, Okay we we originally
0: were, were sorry to, sorry go ahead, to interrupt. no go ahead sorry, do it do it we originally <laughs> cut this little sidebar out but when harini says it so bluntly like that i i cannot help but express i'm like how did this man survive like because he's in yeah. the documentary t- talking yeah, about he, this he, he's I'm telling like, the story how? yeah are you alive anyway that's all i had to say well-
1: I know, I know, and so when he was—that was the most unbelievable part of this whole thing. I'm like, this guy is looking at me through the TV screen, telling this story, and he is the same person <laughs> that's been eating all these pills. Like, that's not possible. And like the way that he, yeah. like the way he says it, it's like, like I don't even think he believes it happened, you know? Because he was just right, like, right. I would sit down every day with it was like a bowl of cereal like he would put it in a bowl and he said it would take him almost 20 30 minutes to even get through all the pills (gasps) oh god and the thing is like okay mm, go ahead go ahead (laughs) this
0: is process (laughs) but also i'm like we know he's an outlier we know this is an absurd amount to take i'm shocked he's alive part (sighs) of me is like he's got great kidneys. you know what sure and, and and i was just saying i'm like i think he's superhuman right. like that sounds so ridiculous but but hear me out i'm like this person has a a, a crazy invulnerability to high doses of opioids yeah. this person is like
1: a higher human being than others i'm just saying yeah I'm just yeah. Saying. like there okay. i can't even think of an, another explanation but that um or he
0: has four <laughs> kidneys and money. four livers <laughs> right right <laughs> His mon- his I, I want to say it's a mundane superpower, but I'm like, right. like this is what real super beings, in my opinion, would look like, right? If that existed, it's not people who can fly; <laughs> it's people who have high tolerance to chemicals and drugs. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: it's anyway. That's that's just a sidebar.
1: <laughs> no, no, but it's interesting because he he says even after after he takes the 25 tablets, he's like, I still didn't get any pain relief. You know what? What? I just had a thought. What if they weren't giving him real Oxycontin tablets? What if they're giving him placebo? I mean, I don't think they were, but that would have been really in- That's an interesting thought process. If they were just like, hey, like well, this guy has a big tolerance, but they don't want to risk mm-hmm. him like overdosing either. If I, if, you know, right. if I were in their position, I'm like, we don't want to put it in position because they're basically like telling him, take as much as you want, you know? So give him placebo and then he's just like i don't have any tall like i don't feel anything let me take more and more and more and it's just like not doing anything but it also serves their purpose of being like see it you can go as high as you want and he's fine that that,
0: that's That's an interesting theory (laughs) yeah i I, that's a great conspiracy i almost feel like it's a catch-22 though because it's like for them to do that and have it be a placebo without people Knowing about this when they um, you put out their findings during this time, that benefits them because then it gets what they want. Because then they're like, "Oh, look, like you know, this is the amount that (laughs) you can go to, sort of thing, without um, overdosing or whatever." Right. So that benefits them. But at the same time, if this example was used against them in court, why wouldn't they then say, "We actually"? you know, we were putting out placebo stuff. It, it still would hurt them in trial. Yeah. I guess, yeah. you know what I mean? But like, they could also it use that to either like way, be, though. either
1: way. Because yeah. It's like a catch it would 22. Either way. Know. Like, it's just like, what's the lesser of two evils from their business standpoint? Because right. Right. Not thinking from like an ethical standpoint. So I'm just thinking like, okay so let's say they did give him oxy like they truly gave him oxycontin and he takes 25 tablets twice daily has 50 tablets that's their case study right so then another person goes and takes 50 tablets a day and they die because of course Mm -hmm. right and that doesn't help them either you know so it's just like just in general i think this is a very bizarre case study that they even decided to trial out on somebody period.
0: Yeah. And 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 no, no matter the greed that's behind this decision to use this case study to push their product, I'm just like, you know the risk. Like, that is a huge yeah. risk to use this one situation. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are multiple situations, but this is, like, very extreme. Uh, it's an interesting choice. Very. It's an interesting business choice. It really it is. is. It is. Moving on. <laughs>
1: so, <laughs> interestingly, <Yeah. laughs> Gary keeps his prescription bottle because... he knew something was up he knew he was being Mm -hmm. used as a guinea pig essentially so he tucks this bottle away for a rainy day Purdue's plan works out gary was the perfect patient who was taking an absurd amount of oxycontin and was functioning functioning totally normally it was a great testament to how oxycontin could not be abused at one point Hmm. kaufman the sales rep she's hand delivering pills to gary She was his dealer. Instead of being fired or reprimanded at the minimum, Kaufman is promoted and her new position involves training new sales reps. Mm. So going back to John Brownlee and the case, this is like kind of backtracking a little bit. So this is when they're actually building the case and they're they're in the trial. They subpoena Mark Ross to come testify in front of a grand jury they wanted him to testify about Dr. Frank Sutherland and how he was over-prescribing Oxy. So if you remember, Dr. Frank Sutherland is the one who was like snorting it off of his desk. Mm-hmm. Mark Ross is nervous, to say the least, so he contacts Purdue's head of legal counsel, Howard Udell. Udell straight up tells Mark Ross, quote, you're on your own. And that was that. <laughs> Mark Ross <was> is <laughs> like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> like, what? Mark Ross, Stephanie Kaufman... Gary Blinn, that's the guy's name. His name is Gary Blinn. And many, many more are called in to testify against Purdue Pharma or about their involvement with Purdue Pharma. And like I said, it's this Mm. huge 120-page prosecution memo. And the Sacklers don't view this entire situation in any kind of light at all. There's no reflection to be had. They're just like, okay, this is part and parcel of our business. How do we buy ourselves out of this? and How do we get rid of this as quickly as possible? Which they do. In fact, they double down once more and they start sending out emails to their leadership on ideas of creating a higher dose formulation and marketing methods to keep patients in Oxy even longer. Mm. All right. So remember from last episode, Carol and Roy Bosley, the story I didn't finish. Yes. Mm -hmm. The nurse and the pediatric physician. Yes. Yes. So we are rounding out that story. Oh, no. Okay. All right. Brace yourselves, y'all. Okay. Fuck. The day before Thanksgiving, I don't know what year, but the day before Thanksgiving, (laughs) Roy, the husband, comes home to find Carol lying face down on the floor in the den with a phone beside her. Roy runs Mm -hmm. to turn her over, grabs the phone, dials 911, and immediately begins CPR. And when I was watching this and doing the research on this, I was just like, I was floored. And then Dave came home and I was mm-hmm. like retelling. I just watched. And when I was telling him, I'm mm-hmm. like, when Roy is retelling the story to us, he he's almost devoid mm-hmm. of emotion. And I understand it because mm-hmm. he is tired. He is tired. He's mm-hmm. I can't even tell you like I'm, I'm assuming like I couldn't even tell you like how many times he must have come home to that same situation mm-hmm. over and over again. And he does the same thing. He runs right. over, calls on anyone, begins CPR.
0: Mm-hmm. Hopefully
1: his wife wakes up. I think he always dreaded the day that he comes home and she's no longer there she's gone right right so he does what he does and now roy knows like with the time passed and after speaking to doctors that his wife was dead hours before that she passed away Mm. earlier that morning and it was already too late Mm. roy and his family they sue lynn webster who is the doctor that prescribed her all the opioids and life tree pain clinic right Before the settlement hearing, there was a Doppel meeting, which stands for Department of Professional Licensing, and Lynn Webster is there for his hearing. In that meeting, Mm. Webster tells everyone that Carol was suicidal. He Mm. just could not take responsibility for what he did. To this Mm. day, Lynn Webster stands by his decision. He claims he was in an mm-hmm. internal predicament where he couldn't win. His patients were always seeking out pain relief. If he didn't give the patients the pain meds, then they would be suicidal. And if he did, then there was always a chance that they would misuse it, overdose, or purposely kill themselves. He literally says, quote, mm-hmm. It's not easy to make the right choice all the time. <laughs> hmm. I'm telling you, this guy is just... He's a piece of shit.
0: Well, I was just going to ask, like, any counter statements on that from uh, actual uh psychiatrists or psychologists that she might have been seeing or anything like was there any proof against his claim that she was suicidal i obviously know like the the sentiment here he's he's not willing mm-hmm. to take accountability mm-hmm. so he's victimizing right. the victim or, or victim blaming the victim um but I, I am curious, like, did anyone, was anyone able to be like, dude, where are you pulling that from? She had no suicidal ideation or suicidal tendencies.
1: Unfortunately, do you know? no. I mean, in the sense, like, I do know, which is it's no, because it's, mm-hmm. un, it was like, it's kind of a shitty time. I think that if I'm remembering correctly, mm-hmm. this is probably going to be like mid 2000s when this all happened. And it's like the doctor's word against the family because the 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 right. family was like she was 100 she was just she just wasn't suicidal she wasn't and the yeah, doctor yeah. was like yeah. no you're wrong like she was my patient i know i went like okay so i went to medical medical school for eight years to not know when someone's suicidal like where's your degree right. to tell me that's not the case right, right? so unfortunately in but also c- if that was
0: the mm-hmm. i'm just saying like well if that was the case and i would assume that if your patient let you know about some mental issue or suicidal mm-hmm. ideation, you would refer them to a professional.
1: Yep. Absolutely. Right? 100% um, right. So it's
0: like, was there proof of that. So, right. I mean, like I went, I went to my primary care person and I told them about like weight related issues mm-hmm. in a way that like, I, I, I didn't ex- actually expect them to do this, but they were like, Oh, like, I, here's a reference to um, like a psychiatrist sort of thing, like mm-hmm. if you want to do therapy, which mm-hmm. I, I super appreciate And Like I take no offense to that. I think it was the right call. Right. But like I'm like, if someone's willing to do that for me over like a small comment on my concern about my weight. Right. Then I'm like, why wouldn't you refer someone if they were expressing yeah. suicidal
1: ideation you're exactly right actually if someone expresses any kind of suicidal ideation to a healthcare professional you are supposed to call Mm -hmm. emergency services because you right even if even if they're just speaking and they there's no like Mm -hmm. immediate threat or you don't think that they're going to go do anything right that moment you cannot take that risk so you need to Mm -hmm. alert the proper services to at least check them out like you have to do the due diligence because the other situation of when you of what you don't do, you don't even want to enter that. You don't want to mm. entertain that thought. So, and you're 100 right. And I didn't. Even, that's a great. That's a great thing to call out, Megan, because I didn't think about that. You're mm. so right. I don't know what was the context of that trial and like what was actually said. Right, right. This was coming from Roy, the right. husband, that he right testified in court that she was suicidal what did that what did those um judges do to further dig into that i don't know but clearly it was not enough because he did not get prosecuted right horrible yeah it's bad it's bad all wrong at the time of her Mm. death carol was on the following meds as prescribed by dr lynn webster 60 tablets of amitriptyline 50 milligram strength 30 tabs of selexa, which is 40 milligram strength, strength which is an antidepressant. 220 tabs of oxycontin, 30 milligram strength. Mm. 112 tabs of Percocet, another opioid, uh, 10 by mm. 23 325 milligram strength. The 325 is um Tylenol. 60 mm. tabs of requip, 1 milligram, which is I which is more for her accident. I believe it's for um, mm. tremors and her nerve damage, I believe. I'll have to double check myself. Mm. Sixty tabs of Xanax, one milligram. Sixty tabs of Xanaflex, four milligrams. Yes. So the documentarian asks a doctor if they saw this prescription come through of this regimen for a patient. What would you do? The doctor mm. said, I would report that doctor to the medical board because they are clearly putting that patient's life at risk. Mm. Following year, a raid by the DEA is done on life Tree Pain Clinic. Once again, despite a strong, strong case against Lynn Webster, the DOJ fails to prosecute. Hmm. Yep, that's that's that. <laughs> oh, I, was gonna, yeah. I thought that was thought that was long, mm-hmm. or that that was short, but it's actually an hour. I will. No, stop that was perfect. Follow up question: mm-hmm. Did this
0: whole situation, so like this, the opioid epidemic during this specific time period, because we're still going through it, but this was the the instigator of of what's happening now so i almost see it as waves it's waves so this is the first Mm -hmm. wave essentially Mm -hmm. caused by purdue specifically with oxycontin does this point in our history have anything to do with kind of like you know how there's a culture of people not trusting doctors in terms of you ever hear the comment like uh you know medical professionals they just over prescribe these days Do you know that, you know that, like that mindset, that culture, and it's, it's something I've never looked into because I think I'm, well, one, I I never pursued healthcare. (laughs) And two, Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I still feel like I'm a child. Like I'm, I'm, we're still, I'm still in my mid twenties. And so when I hear those things, um, comments like that throughout my teenage years to early twenties, it's not Mm -hmm. something I ever invested my energy to look into, but I like understood the sentiment of like uh, you know because I know there was concerns around oh you know we're overprescribing kids for ADHD reasons or um for you know uh, I think there was a culture of concern around um, Ritalin yeah, and Adderall, totally. but like but but what do you think? Do you think this Purdue OxyContin event contributed to that?
1: Yes. Oh, cultural yeah, concern. Absolutely. I think yeah. in many ways it even started with this. Yeah, I mean, I think the the initial term was like, "Oh, you guys are under prescribing," but then when all this stuff came Mm. out, they were like, "You are over prescribing," and that became a big Mm. buzzword because they were right. That's the yeah, the doctors. They were like, "You cannot prescribe like you have to have a damn good reason now to prescribe that opioid." Right. So yeah. Okay. Very interesting. Is there gonna be a part three? There is. There's gonna be part three. I'm so it, interested. It's gonna be all about Bentonil and all the way up to yeah. today. And actually I did like while I was doing some of the research for the next episode, I was doing that today and it got me thinking about Lauren Smith Fields and I wanted to do a follow up. Mm. I had been checking in a little bit, yeah. but nothing has popped up so far. And unfortunately, even today, like when I looked on the on Google, there wasn't anything more that mm. has come out and but mm-hmm. the one article I did read, it was about how, you know, the, like TikTok has basically blown up about her story and like there's like the internet sleuths or right. like at it trying to solve this because police are not. And it bugs me because even in that TikTok article, it's like a lot of the TikTok people who are trying to understand like what's going on are coming to a dead mm-hmm. halt as well because people are just not writing about her anymore. And I'm seeing that, like yeah. the articles, it's totally are from died like, down. January. It's died. It's totally yeah. died down. It's so sad. I I was really upset about that. I will. I will. I will honestly
0: save my opinions for when we do part three, because um, I'd like sure. to address that there, because I know I'm going to go on and on about my sure. thoughts uh, about
1: coverage around her story. Yeah. That is the end of part two. So. Next week, we will talk all about fentanyl. And there was, mm-hmm. this is totally unrelated, but I was listening to another, a different podcast that is not anything science at all. It is like, <laughs> it is my palate cleanser. <laughs> um, I love it. But they were talking about drugs. And I was like, oh, like, I'm like, Damn. not like opposed to it. But I was listening and they yeah, were yeah. basically s- singing the song about some, like, it's like, oh, it's like, oh, Beth, oh, Beth. I've got so much energy, oh Beth, but it's not Beth. But I don't want to like promote drugs right now. So, but apparently it's a is d- it? song about meth. <laughs> oh, 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 meth.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, meth. That's funny. I was like, is it Molly? Because Molly's like another woman's name, you know? No, uh, no. Okay. Oh no yeah, yeah
1: totally. Oh meth. But oh, meth. honestly, and then they played the a little piece of the song, and they're like, "We ain't got the rights to this, but we're gonna play it anyways." Oh and my. it is damn catchy it is damn catchy oh shoot i'm gonna have to look it up i might i might need to play it i won't play it this this episode i'll play it next episode because it has more to do with like more hardcore street drugs but yeah 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 it's good (laughs) oh no is it look at me busy as a bee how did i get so much energy oh beth oh beth (laughs) Oh, oh my man! God. Don't come for my singing Boys and fowls. That's it. If you want to listen to it, you can no, look it up great. on YouTube. <laughs> uh, I so appreciate that. Can we just have that be our antidote
0: today, <laughs> yeah, or yeah, yeah. do you have an antidote? No, that is my antidote. Harini singing is my antidote. Great. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> we got some. We got some singing from Harini. Some voice acting from <laughs> yes, Megan yes. early in the episode. It's a little bit. Of uh, we're just uh, on this episode. I know. You don't know it, Poison Pals, but we're just trying to subliminally <laughs> message to you our other secret talents yes. so that when we do come out with a, our, a, an album yeah, exactly. or something, Liana's you will be to come out the album, but we will. We're going to do it for we'll her. we do it for
1: her. We are, we are her ghost writers <laughs> and singers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we have our jukebox and we're going to bring our right. jukebox back. Mm, mm,
0: mm. Oh yeah, we're we'll going to bring that back. I would not be opposed if if we do an episode of us just attempting to sing songs. I think just that'd like be a, kind of fun.
1: It's not even. Plays. I don't care if nobody likes it's just it. It's a karaoke hour, a full hour of just karaoke yeah. with no music, just, voices. <laughs> just our voices, just uh, us. Uh, nothing is more excruciating
0: fun for us. <laughs> I know, fun for us. Good luck to the yeah. listener.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, guys, for listening to another jam-packed episode. If you liked it, please mm-hmm. rate, review, and subscribe. And join us on TikTok. We've got a good thing going on TikTok. We did use on there, mm-hmm. informative and not informative. So, pick your flavor. It's all fun. Yeah.
0: <laughs> for now. That's just
1: okay. <laughs> Bye, guys. Peace. <laughs>